Once again, welcome uh, to Harvest Bible Chapel. We're so glad you're here worshiping with us today. And uh, my name is Pastor Micah, and uh, if I don't know you yet, uh, I want to meet you later. So please catch me after service. I would love to do that. I'm really excited, though, today to jump back into God's Word. Uh, We all missed last week, and I didn't get to preach the week before that. So if you know a pastor, two weeks off is like something starts like itching inside of you. So we're going to get right into God's Word this morning. Uh, Grab your Bibles. Uh, We have been in this new series uh, this year called God's Money. And we've been looking at how can we approach money and finances from a biblical perspective? How can we come at it the way that God sees it, all right? How do we get a God-centered perspective on our finances? And we've been learning that all money uh, is actually God's money, right? Like it all belongs to him. He owns it all. We're just here to steward it. He gives some of it to us to use and to steward for him and for his glory. And, And because of that, because we're stewards, Uh, That also means that we are responsible and we are accountable for how we steward God's money. And uh, one of the things he expects from us as stewards is to, what we're going to talk about today, multiply it faithfully. Uh, God is looking for a return on the investment that he gives to each of us uh, as we steward his money. And so uh, before I jump into the sermon today, I want to just kind of mention uh, two things. Oh, by the way, did I tell you yet? We're going to be in Luke 19. Did I miss that part? Sorry. So you got your Bibles. Go to Luke 19. I'll meet you there in a second. If you need a Bible, there's some on the floor underneath the chairs there. You can grab one of those. But as I was preparing this week, um, back at the beginning of the series, we gave you a little resource sheet that had all kinds of like resources on there to help you as you're kind of you know, praying through and working through financial things for your life and family and whatever. Um, and some of the things on there were some books that we recommended that could be helpful to you. And two of those books I relied on very heavily today as I was preparing the sermon. So I just want to mention those to you again. Uh, one of them is called Randy, is by Randy Alcorn. It's called The Treasure Principle. Uh, so you can see it's a little book, very simple read, uh, but super, super helpful. Um, so if you haven't read this, I would encourage you to grab that. You can get it pretty cheap on Amazon and check that book out. The other one is called Money, God, or Gift by Jamie Munson. Um, and again, small book, easy. This is actually like a devotional book. There's like, you can do it for like a day. Like there's like readings for each day for a couple weeks. Um, really, really helpful. Um, so if I say anything like really great and profound today in the sermon, it probably came from one of these two guys, just so you know. Um, but these are, these are great resources. If you haven't checked those out yet, I would encourage you to do that. So as we're talking about multiplying it faithfully, it reminded me of this this time when I was working for my dad. So there was a season in my career where I was working for my dad's company. He owns a, a training and consulting company. And, and one of my jobs was to go out and find and bid on and win uh, government contracts where our company would then go in and do training for these different government agencies. And if I can just be really honest with you, man, it was like a hard gig. Like it's hard to get into government contracts and to find them and to, to bid on them. And it, was, it was just complicated. And so I found um, this organization that did these seminars that uh, would help you learn how to do this. And so you would come, you'd go to their seminar, and they would teach you how to find the contracts and so forth, and they would teach you all the ins and outs of it. And they promised they would even do like personal coaching sessions with you in the seminar so that when you left, you would already have two or three new contracts in your hands that you could go after and, and so on. The catch was um, it cost about two grand to go to the seminar. And uh, so it was pretty expensive, but I mean, you had the potential of making thousands and thousands of more dollars for your company if it went well. And so, um, so I go to my dad and I pitch this to him. I'm like, hey, I think this might help us. And so on. So I said, okay, let's do it. Let's try it. So three of us sign up to go to the seminar. So like six grand for three of us to go. It's like a three-day seminar. We go, we're in this thing all day, three days. At the end of three days, 
all the sessions, all the coaching. We had zero new information and absolutely no leads to follow up with. Like they didn't teach us anything that we didn't already know. And I remember walking out of there thinking, okay, we just spent all this money and all we have to show for it is a receipt, right? Like we got nothing else for the company and I felt horrible. I felt disappointed and angry and upset that I had just cost our company all this money with really no return on what we just spent. And um, I've learned very quickly, I, I, they gave us this binder from that train, like, you know, they always give like the big fancy binders when you go to this stuff, right? And so I held on to that binder, not because it had anything helpful in it at all, but as a reminder to myself of that failure and a reminder that, hey, just because you invest in something doesn't mean anything if it doesn't bring a return on the investment, right? The same is true for our life and our walk with the Lord when it comes to the money that he's given us to steward. He expects us to invest it. He wants us to go after that. And there's grace when we fail because he knows we're not perfect. But he wants us to be doing something with it, going after a return on the investment that he's giving us and we stewarding his money. So with that in mind, we're going to look at Luke today. And here's kind of the main focus. A good steward gives God a return, not just a receipt. A good steward of the Lord's money is looking to bring the Lord a return for his kingdom, for his investment, not just a, a stack of receipts on all the way that we've spent his money to make our life better. And we're going to see that here very plainly by this guy named Zacchaeus here in Luke chapter 19. So if you've got your Bibles, look at verse 1 with me. It says, He entered Jericho, that's Jesus, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when the others saw it, they grumbled, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, Half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone, anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. So if we're going to be good stewards for the Lord, here's the first thing that we have to do. We have to live for eternal, not earthly treasure. If we're going to be good stewards of multiplying God's money, we have to live for eternal and not earthly treasure. So we have this guy named Zacchaeus. Some of you guys, who's familiar with Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a, no, 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 no. He was not, no, he was a chief tax collector. Did you not read the scripture right here? Did you guys miss that part? He was the chief tax collector, which means that he had sold out for the money, right? He had went into business with the enemy, he was a Jew. He was now working for the Romans to tax the other Jews and bring in the revenue for the occupying force. And by doing that, the Bible says that he made himself rich. Because what the tax collectors would do, they would they'd come and collect the taxes. They wouldn't just collect what they were supposed to. They would collect extra and charge people extra and keep the extra money for themselves and make themselves rich. So he was a chief tax collector. He was a rich man. And he was also, he was also a sinful man, it tells us. He was a lost man. He needed something more. 
all of his riches, all of his wealth, all of his stuff, his occupation, his position, none of it had satisfied whatever it was he was running after. None of it had fully filled in that gap in his life that he was trying to find desperately a way to fill. And he was lost, and he needed something, and he thought, maybe what I need is this Jesus guy. So he goes seeking after Jesus, and he finds Jesus, and his encounter with Jesus changes his entire life. Some of you know what that's like. And right here, he turns to Jesus, and he says, after he meets Jesus, he says, listen, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone, I restore it fourfold, four times. I mean, talk about a complete 180 on money right? Like he goes from ripping people off, all about him, making himself rich. It's, it's all about his, his comfort and his lifestyle to, okay, never mind. I'm giving it all back, giving it all to the poor. Anybody I stole from, I'm going to pay him back with interest. Like it's all going back, Jesus. This is what we call repentance. This is a perfect picture of what we call repentance. I was headed this way for myself, in my sin, wanting my thing, and I meet Jesus, and all of a sudden, I turn 180 and go the opposite direction towards him and worshiping him and loving him rather than worshiping and loving myself, or in this case, the money. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this place, to this home, to this heart. See, what happens here is Zacchaeus moved from worshiping money, from having money at the root of his heart to having Jesus there. There was a new king on the throne of Zacchaeus' life. What's interesting is this is kind of the exact opposite. There's another story in the Gospels where Jesus meets this guy and he comes up and he says, Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? He's like, well, you're pretty rich. He's like, go give all your stuff to the poor, sell all your goods, and come and follow me. And it says that the rich young ruler turned around and walked away sad because he couldn't do it. Because he loved his stuff, and he loved his money, and he loved his earthly treasure more than he loved Jesus. I think if we're honest, that's true of some of us today. Maybe not all the time, but at least some of the time. We love our stuff, we love our money, we love our things more than we love Jesus. Because we are underneath the false impression, the outright lie from the enemy that that stuff, that money, that bank account, that job, that new car, that new house, those new earrings, they're going to make me happy again. Like I'm not feeling very good about myself right now. I'm not really loving my life right now, but if I can just get that, if I can just get that new iPhone, then man, things are going to be all better for me. We don't say it like that, but something in our heart and our minds thinks like that. And we're running after these false gods and we're worshiping these false things and God is saying, listen, I've got what you want. Jesus is saying, come to me. Right? God knows that we're broken. Even better than we do, if you can believe that. God knows that we're broken and we're desperate and we're dying in sin and that we need a true savior on the, king of, on the throne of our heart. And so he sent his son Jesus to come and live a perfect life and go to the cross and die a sinner's death in our place for our sin. And he was buried and he rose three days later to say, come to me. He says it right here, Zacchaeus, I came to seek and save the lost. That's his purpose. That's you, that's me. He came to seek and save us. And he's saying, come to me. 
and I'll give you what you're really looking for. I will fulfill that need in you and things will be so much better than anything you could possibly imagine. You see, Zacchaeus' issue here was not being rich or poor. There are some false teachings today that, that te- try to teach us that if, you are, if you're really holy, if you're really following God, then you'll always be rich. Or there's another side that says, if you're really following Jesus and you're really following God, then you'll always be poor because you'll give away everything. The issue is not whether you're rich or poor. Being rich or poor does not make you holy. Jesus does. Jesus is the key, right? It's not about the money. Regardless of whether you are rich or poor, the question is, what are you doing with what you have? What are you doing with what God has given you? Are you using it to worship yourself and to worship your own thing and your own comfort and your own lifestyle? Or are you using what he's given you to worship him? Are you focusing on his kingdom or your own? Are you investing it for eternity or for earthly gain? The book I mentioned earlier, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn, he summarizes the whole book like this. He says, when he's talking about money, he says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And that's the key, right? We all came into life with nothing. (laughs) You're gonna leave with nothing but there's a chance, there's an opportunity that you have as a follower of Christ right now to invest what he's given you in his kingdom and in his glory, and it will send it on ahead into eternity where you can have treasure waiting for you when you get to heaven. Alcorn gives this analogy in the book about a dot and a line. He says that our life is made up of a dot and a line. The dot is the here and now. The dot is the present. The dot is this life, and it's short, and it's finite, and it has a beginning, and it has an end. Go ahead and throw that up there. Go ahead and throw that picture up there for us, that dot and that line. But the line that extends out from that is the life that we're going to have for eternity with God forever and ever, and it just keeps going and going and going. And the question is, which part of that are you living for? So often we get caught in, we're living in the dot, but we're not supposed to live for the dot, right? We're supposed to live for the line. When I'm investing in my stuff and the bigger house and the bigger car and all the stuff and and trying to hoard all my stuff together in the bigger bank account, I'm, I'm focused on the dot. And I'm missing the opportunity to invest in the line and the treasures that I will get to experience forever and ever. Eventually, all the stuff you acquire in this life in the dot, it's all going to fade away. It's all going to end up in a junkyard somewhere, either when you die or maybe sooner, the way they make stuff these days, right? Like, it could be like next week, but it's all going away. But the stuff that we invest in the treasures that we store up in heaven will be yours forever. Living for the dot is to worship stuff and to worship self as the highest pinnacle of human happiness. To live for the line is to worship God and invest in true joy that will last for all eternity. So, first question today is this. What is your purpose 
in multiplying what you have been given? Is it for you or is it for God? We're all looking to multiply our stuff, right? Like we're all looking to multiply our money. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But why are you multiplying it? Is it just for you, just so you can have more? Or are you multiplying it so that you can use it to invest in the kingdom and the glory of God and the eternity that we'll spend with him? Is it for you or is it for God? Zacchaeus did a complete flip on this. He started the story with, it's all about me and all about my stuff and me being rich and my things, my comfort. And it flipped when he met Jesus. And now, now it's all about him. I'm giving it away. I'm, I'm being generous. I'm worshiping God. I'm not worshiping my money. Are you going to live for the dot? Or are you going to live for the line? If we're going to be good stewards of God's money, we have to live for eternal, not earthly treasure. Point number two if we're going to be good stewards, we need to work hard and do not worry. So it's interesting to me, right after this little encounter with Zacchaeus, all the disciples are around. So the disciples are with Jesus, and they're seeing all this go down. And then he turns and he starts teaching his disciples right there in the midst of this thing. Look at verse 11. He says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. All right, so they just heard all the stuff with Zacchaeus. He's like, let me, tell, let me teach you something here. So he's going to tell them a story. Because he was near Jerusalem and because they were supposed to, Suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The disciples thought that Jesus was here to bring the kingdom of God to bear, like to kick out the Romans and take back over, and we're going to be in charge again, and it's all going to happen right now. He's like, well, you're totally, let me, let me teach you about the kingdom for a second, right? Let me teach you how to live in the kingdom. So then he tells them this story. Look at verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had by, gained by doing business. The first came to him uh, before him, saying, Lord, your mena has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. Nice. The second man came and said, Lord, your mena has made five minas. And he said to him, and you will be over five cities. See a pattern? Then another came and said, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man? Really? Taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow? Is that what you think of me? Okay, fine. He said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minutes. Why would you give him more? I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But for the, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. All right, so let's unpack this a little bit here. So you've got this nobleman, the master, the, 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 the head guy. That's Jesus, right, in the story. And it says this guy calls his servants to him. He's getting ready to leave on a business trip. So he calls his servants and says, hey, I want you to do business while I'm gone. I'm going to give you each one minna, that's money. I'm going to give you some money. And I want you to go out and do business with this money. And if you give someone money to do business for you, what are you expecting them to do? Make more money, right? Like, I don't give you money for a business hoping you're going to get a loss, right? Like, so he's like, here, take some money, go multiply it, bring it back. When I get back, I'm going to expect an accounting of how you use the money and how you invested it to make a profit. 
okay? Businesses call this a return on investment, right? Like I'm putting something in, expecting a return on the investment. That's the nobleman, that's the master, that's Jesus. Something we need to see from this parable is that Jesus is a very demanding boss. Like, Mike, I've never heard that. When I've heard, like, you know, good savior and gracious redeemer and, you know, like all the other things. I've never heard that he's all those things too, but he's also a demanding boss. Jesus expects a return on the investment that he gives to his people. He expects us to do something with it, to multiply it, right? Doesn't mean you're not going to fail sometimes. Doesn't mean that you're not going to mess up and maybe lose some, but he's expecting you to at least try to go and make a return on the investment that he's given you. And guess what? You got the Holy Spirit on your side, so things are going to go well eventually, right? Like, we're not short on power. So then he goes on, he goes away, he comes back, and he starts calling the servants, and he says, hey, tell me how things went. So the first guy comes, he says, hey, you gave me one minute, I made it into ten. And from the master, he gets, well done, good servant. Because you took one to ten, I'm going to make you master over ten cities. Bonus, right? Second guy comes, he says, you gave me one minute, I made it into five. Okay, not quite as good as ten, but still good. Still return, we're good with that, so I'll put you over five cities. You see the pattern? Faithful multiplication leads to greater opportunity and joy. As we step out in faith and as we start to multiply what God has given us and we invest it and we start to see a profit and a return come on it, God entrusts us with more. He gives us more opportunity to continue to invest and build and multiply for the kingdom. He says, you're doing good. Here, let me give you some more to work with. But then this third guy comes in, this third servant. He says, hi, you gave me one minute, and here, I have one minute back for you. He's like, what? Did you, not, did you miss the assignment? Like, was there a miscommunication here? He's like, no, no, I, I hid it in a handkerchief. Why did you hide it? Because you're a severe man, and if I lost it, you might get mad at me and, like, fire me or kill me or something worse. Like, like so I hid it, and here, you can have it back now. Is the master happy or not happy? Show me. Thumbs up, thumbs down. How's the master feeling right now? No. Right? Is he mad because the guy lost the money? No. Is he mad because he didn't come up with 10 minutes like the first guy? No. He's mad that he didn't even try to make a profit. He says, if, if that's really the case, you should have at least put it in the bank that when I came back, I could have got some interest on my money. Right? Like, you could have at least done that. That's the minimum you could do. But you didn't. You just put it away. Why? Because you were afraid. And he calls him a wicked servant because he's lazy and he's fearful and he didn't do it. So he says, take it away from him and give it to the guy who has 10. Because he doesn't have enough faith to even try, but this guy's actually going after it. Fear and worry distort my view of Jesus. And they forfeit future return. When we get stuck in patterns of fear and worry like we see here, it distorts my view of who Jesus is. I start to think of him as something that he's not. And in doing so, I hide and I hurt and I hoard and I keep and I cover up and I try to just protect instead of going out and doing what he's called me to do and serving him well. And I forfeit any future return that might come as a result of doing what he's asked me to do. So from this parable, I want to just draw out real quickly here three approaches to stewardship. 
three approaches to stewardship that we have before us. You can jot these down. I think this will be helpful as you're kind of processing through this. The first one is uh, investing. The first approach to stewardship is investing. That's what the, the nobleman wants them to do. That's what he expects from them, right? That you're going out and you're using the resources you've been given, however much that is, all right? If you got $2, if you got $200, if you got $2 million, whatever God's given you, go out and use it and invest it to try to multiply those resources. That's what the expectation is, right? In business, we always say you have to spend money to make money. You heard that before, right? You got to spend, that's, that's investing resources to make more resources. The key is to make wise investments, not unwise investments. Invest in things that um, have a good show of return. Invest in things that you know something about, that you're educated on, that you are, have some clear counsel on, all right? Don't try to jump into the, the next big get-rich-quick get scheme that comes across your door, like, oh, this is gonna be my chance to make all the millions. Wise investments, okay, that's the key. So investing is the first thing that he calls us to. The second approach, not quite as good as investing, but still somewhat, sometimes, legitimate, is saving. Right? Sometimes we need to take the resources God has given us and we need to put them uh, in a savings where we can be getting a little bit of interest on that, at least we're getting some return on it, while we're waiting for the right opportunity to invest those things in a way that's actually going to multiply for the kingdom. And um, uh, our church, for example, we try to keep uh, three or so months of um, kind of cushion in our bank account so we have something to fall back on if something happens, if something crazy goes, whatever, we've got some money that we can get by for a few months and that's wise financial stewardship. So we had all this money sitting in the bank account and we're sitting there going, it's just sitting there, man. It's not getting anything. So what are we going to do? So we took it this last year and we put it in a money market account with the bank. So we're not getting a ton of interest, but we're getting a little bit of interest while it's sitting there as our cushion and keeping our church safe financially. Right? So it's kind of a win-win. And so there's times where that's what you need to do. You need to take what God's given you. You need to save it and, and get a little bit of something on the interest, but also have it there for the next opportunity God gives. The third approach to stewardship, which is definitely uh, down below the other two, is worrying. And this is the one where we get stuck sometimes. See, worrying is based in fear for future provision. I start worrying about money when I'm afraid that I'm not going to have enough down the road. Not going to have enough for this bill or that bill or this thing or that thing or what if something goes wrong and then I don't have what I need. And I start worrying. I start getting fearful. And that leads to hoarding, not multiplying. Right? It leads to, I got to have more and I got to save it up. I got to keep it for me and I, I got to hoard it in case something goes wrong and then I don't have what I need down the road. And it keeps us from having a heart that's looking to multiply what God has given us for his kingdom. And it shows lack of faith in the provider. That if something does go crazy, that he's still going to take care of me. So how do we deal with this? And when we get stuck in these cycles of worry and fear, how do we fix it? The way you fix worry is plan. Make a plan. If you're worried about something that might happen, make a plan to mitigate that worry so you can then move on with full confidence of multiplying for the Lord and allowing him to bless that. Let me give you some examples. All right, some, some common financial worries. How about unemployment? What if I lose my job and then we won't have anything? Well, then what? Okay, great. Get a savings account. Put three months worth of your salary in the savings account and keep it there. 
And don't use it for other stuff like Christmas or the new car or whatever. Like keep, their, keep it there, and that's your backdrop. And if something happens, that gives you three months to stay on your feet until you can find a new job. Right? Now, I don't have to be worried about that all the time, and I can use what I have to multiply for the Lord. How about um, an unexpected crisis? What about the car repair that pops up that nobody thought was coming or the health thing or the whatever? What do I do about that? Okay, well, have an emergency fund, $1,000, $2,000, whatever you think you need. Have it set aside that when something pops up, I've got that. And that unexpected expense doesn't have to cripple my life and cripple my ability to then invest and continue to multiply faithfully for the Lord. Uh, Death of a spouse. What if my spouse dies and I can't? work and take care of the kids and pay the bills. Yeah, that's a real thing. Have some life insurance, okay? You can get term life insurance fairly cheap, right? Like it's for on a monthly or yearly basis. Like go get some life insurance. Then you know your family's taken care of. You don't have to live in this fear of what if this happens? You know, Michael, you know we're young, we're kind of newly married and we're thinking about having kids, but we're really afraid that we can't afford kids. And we'll just amen to that. And I don't, when you figure out how to do that, please let me know. We would love to have some insight on how to afford kids. But in the meantime, instead of worrying about it, how about you just, like, if you have two incomes, start living on one income and save the other one. And that can be money for when the kids come. Or if you're on one income, use part of it. Like, just start adjusting your budget so you're making space for what is to come. If there's ways to do this in a way that honors the Lord. Retirement. I'm worried about retirement. I'm going to have money for, you know, health insurance or, or my bills or whatever. Okay, good. Go sit with a financial planner. Make a plan. Start saving. Start sacrificing now so you have more for later. There are ways to deal with worry that doesn't have to cripple your ability to follow the Lord and multiply faithfully what he's given you. Some would argue, and I've, heard, I've had this pushback before, well, doesn't all this saving and planning and all that stuff, doesn't that like go against the whole idea of trusting God and, and just putting yourself on him and, you know, he's sovereign and he's going to provide and, and he's going to have, he's going to take care of you. You don't have to do all the, there's just one problem with that. The Bible, okay? Because the Bible has a lot to say about saving and planning and he has all this stuff in there where he actually commends it and the Bible is pro-planning and pro-saving because if I'm planning, I'm saving, then I'm giving God more space in my life to use me and use my savings or use my plan to multiply for his glory. Let me give you some verses. You might not believe me. I know you guys are like, give me the Bible, Mike. Okay, here you go. Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Pretty clear, right? Planning's good. How about this one? Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. She's saving. She's preparing for the future when the winter comes, right? Like planning and saving are good things from the Lord. Here's the real key. Here's the real, it's really about the heart behind it all. Listen to this verse, 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes, this is the key, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The issue is not planning or saving or any of that. The issue is, where's your hope? Planning and saving are good as long as you don't put your hope in your plan or your hope in your savings or your hope in your retirement fund 
we do all that so God has more space to work in our lives, but our hope is still in him. That he's going to get to use it, and he, it's his. It's not even mine, right? That savings account is there for him. It's not there for me. So that he can use it, and he can do what he wants to do in it and through it. So where's your hope is really the bottom line. Around our house, um, we like to play games and stuff, and board games and card games and whatever. And like one classic uh, card game, because it's so easy to learn and, uh, and teach, is Uno, right? Everybody know Uno? Who, who here has played Uno before? Show of hands. All right, here we go. Who here has never played Uno? Do we have anybody? Okay, we need to talk afterwards. We need to get you, like, up on the, on the Uno game, all right? Um, so, but one of the crazy things about Uno is um, that there's all these, like, if you go to different houses and different people, like, everybody has their different house rules for Uno. Do you ever notice this? Like, like more than any other game, you got different rules for Uno. Like, uh, how many of you, um, you know, when you play, when somebody plays the draw two, um, that are you allowed to play a card after you draw two, or you have to wait till the next turn to play the card? Right, like that's that's a thing, right? Like everybody's like, yeah, I'll be like, yeah, no, no, right? Like this is this is how it works. Or like um, or like the reverse card, when you're playing just two people, does the reverse really reverse the other direction, or does it skip the other person, right? And some of y'all are like, oh man, we had this argument like last week, right? Um, my favorite one, my favorite house rule is the action cards. How, who does count, who does compounding action cards? All right, you know, you know what I'm talking about? So. If I play a draw two, the next person can play their draw two, and the next person can play their draw two until nobody has one, and that person has draw like eight, right? Like, so it's, just, it's awesome. It's the best. Um, but the whole point of Uno is this. At the end of the hand, I want no cards in my hand, right? The way you win is you get rid of all your cards, and whoever has cards left loses that hand, and that, those points go against them, right? And that's, that's the way it goes. That is how God looks at our lives. He doesn't want any cards left in our hands that should have been played when the game is over. It's the opposite of the American dream. The American dream is how many cards can I get? How can I collect as many cards as I want, have the most cards in my hand when I die, that I have, I've, I've collected all this stuff and all this money. God says, no, 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 play the cards. I didn't give you the cards to hold on to them. I want you to invest them. I want you to play them. I want you to, to get the cards out there into play. I think one of the things that, um, that struck me, I remember this as a kid. There was a slogan for a while. I don't even know what, what ad it was or what commercial it was. But there was this commercial that said, um, the, 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 one, the man who dies with the most toys wins. Anybody else remember that? Is this just me? Is that right? No. The man who dies with the most toys still dies. (laughs) That's the reality, right? My dad used to say it this way. You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Like, like you're not taking any of it with you, right? Like, you came in with nothing. You're going out with nothing. And God wants us to use that and to invest it as much as we can right now in this life so that we're building up treasures in the life to come. We're sending it on ahead of us instead of trying to somehow take it with us. Multiplying God's money faithfully means not being caught with any cards in my hands that I should have played when life is over. 
How many cards are you holding on to out of fear or worry rather than investing in, to multiply the kingdom? How many cards in your hand has God given you that you're holding on to and you're hoarding and you're not letting them go and you're not playing them because you're so worried and afraid that if you do, you won't have enough for later? And you're missing opportunities to multiply for the kingdom because you're trying to hold on to the cards. A good steward lives for the eternal, not the earthly. They work hard and don't worry. Point number three, a good steward pursues worship of God, not self. Pursues worship of God, not self. Go back to that parable. There's a couple of verses I didn't really touch on yet. I want to touch on now. Verse 14 says this. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Jump down to verse 27. The master says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That line, we do not want him to reign over us, is the natural cry of the human heart. I don't want anybody else reigning over me. I want to be in charge of me. I want to be the king of my life. I want to be the one who's worshipped. I don't want to have to worship somebody else. Like, I want it all for me. That's how our hearts are naturally bent. But as you can see from the parable... That kind of thinking, that kind of heart only leads to suffering and death. Because when you try to do it on your own without Jesus, it just doesn't go anywhere good. Multiplication can only come when I worship God instead of self. If I really want to multiply for the kingdom, if I really want to be a contributor to God's glory and to his kingdom with what he's given me, then I have to get off myself and off my agenda and off my plan and off my thing and on to God. What do you want to do? How can you maximize what I have for your glory? So what's it look like to faithfully multiply God's money through worshiping him? Not worshiping money, not worshiping self, but worshiping him. I'm going to give you five things here to think through for your life. I just want to make this as super practical as possible for you today, right? Like just, we're, what's, what, there's five things I can just grab a hold of and do right now to adjust or, or look at or at least examine how I'm doing in this area, okay? Five things. Number one, we talked about this a little bit earlier, work for God. That's where it starts. It's got to start there. It can't start anywhere else. I have to work for God. Work hard, work honest, and work faithful, right? Like just keep going at it and don't stop and be faithful to what the Lord has given you to do. So work for God. Number two, invest for God. Invest for God. Be generous with whatever he's given you. Give, invest, support, right? Be wise with it. Look for wise opportunities to invest in areas and places that matter and they're going to bring a return and don't make unwise investments. And, and then listen, when I'm saying invest, here's what I mean. This can look one of two ways. One, 
I can take what God's given me and I can invest it in my business, in my work, in my thing, so that I can grow my business and make more money that I then have to give to the Lord. Or it can be, you know what, I don't have anything to invest in right now to multiply it that way, but I can go ahead and invest it directly into God's kingdom by giving it to the Lord, by giving it to the church, by giving it to a missions organization or whatever to further the gospel. So there's two different types of investing we're talking about here. Earthly investing is going to multiply the money so I have more to give to the Lord, and then investing directly into the church when the time is right. Invest for God, be generous, be wise, and have faith. If you're going to invest, if you're going to step out and actually try to multiply something for God, you're going to have to have some faith that he's going to be with you and that he's going to put his hand on it and he's going to bless it. So work for God, invest for God. Number three might be a little strange for some of us. Maybe you've never heard this before in church. Um, retire for God. So here's a little um, tidbit for you. Uh, retirement is nowhere in the Bible. Okay? The Bible doesn't talk about retirement. It doesn't ever tell you to or not to. And please listen, I'm not saying retirement is a sin. It is not. If you're using your retirement to worship the Lord rather than worship yourself. Are you using that time, that season of your life to go more after Jesus? Or is it more just about me playing golf or shuffleboard or shopping or whatever your thing is, right? Retire for God. What's that look like? First of all, it's... um, be a blessing, not a burden. Right? Retirement's not a time to just put it on cruise control. Okay? There is no cruise control when you're with the Lord. As long as he has you here and he has you breathing, he has something for you to be doing. And he wants to use you and he wants to work through you and, and to multiply even more for his kingdom, even in that season of life. So be a blessing, not a burden. Number two, multiply your time for kingdom work. Part of retirement is I'm not working a full-time job anymore. I have more time on my hands. So how am I investing that time into building the kingdom? Now, it doesn't mean you can't take some of that time to, you know, go do whatever your hobby is and have fun or see the grandkids. All that's great too. There's nothing wrong with any of that, okay? This doesn't mean you have to go from 40 hours at work to 40 hours at the church, okay? But if I got all this extra time, how am I investing that time to multiply more for the Lord and for the kingdom? And lastly, manage your energy to maximize ministry, okay? Um, I'm, I'm far from retirement, uh, praise the Lord, um, but I am getting older. And some of you are like, yeah, you're not even close, Micah, okay, whatever. Okay, I'm just telling you, like, right now, I, I'm trying to get through this sermon because my back feels like it's about to break in half from some, something I did earlier this week, all right? So as we get older, things change. I thought I'd get a better amen on that one, right? Bodies change, uh, life changes, and energy levels change. That's just a reality of what it is. And so as we have less energy, we need to maximize what we have where we're still being a blessing to the Lord and we're still fulfilling to the Lord what he's called us to do. Okay? Still use some of the energy for golf or still use some of the energy for the kids or whatever you want to do else, but are you maximizing some of your energy for the Lord and for his work, even in those retirement days? Now, Please listen to me. I love and I am so thankful and blessed by some people in our own church who are doing this well. We have some retirees. That was not supposed to be an emotional moment. We have some retirees in our church, like Don, 
Pacific, like McCullough's, like others that are pouring their lives out in their last season of life to make sure that they're still contributing to the kingdom. They're not sitting on the sidelines. They're not phoning it in. They're not putting it on cruise control. They are investing everything they can into the Lord's work. And that's what we all need to be going for. I know some of you are starting to approach that time of retirement. And you need to be thinking through these things. How am I going to do this? How am I going to invest myself into the Lord's kingdom even more in those days? Retire for God. Number four kind of builds on that legacy for God. Leave a legacy for God. Here's the question. Will the inheritance you leave, when you're dead and gone, will the inheritance you leave be more valuable than money? Will it be more than just a check written from your lawyer to your kids? When you're thinking about your will, when you're thinking about your trust, when you're thinking about your inheritance that you're going to leave to whoever, here's a phrase I got from one of the books I was reading I thought was really helpful. You need to make sure that you're going to bless not burden your kids with your inheritance. Here's what I mean by that. Leaving your children all your money or a large sum of money is oftentimes not in their best interest. Like, I can tell you numerous inheritance horror stories with fights and estrangement and gossip and greed and all of a sudden there's this huge influx of cash into their lives that they haven't had and they don't know what to do with and it leads into all these other new temptations and problems and just because they haven't worked for it and they don't know how to use it and they haven't been taught how to steward it well. And when you do that, you're not loving them well and it's not loving to God. Now, in the Old Testament, did they do inheritance to the family. Yes, they did. Here's the difference. In the Old Testament, your livelihood was connected to whatever your family owned or did, right? If you didn't have the family's land, if you didn't have the family's business, you had nothing. That's very different than today where most of the time our inheritance is being left as a surplus to adult children who already have their own jobs and already have their own thing going, and it's just extra. Are you tracking with me? And so we need to be careful about how we handle this, because when we leave them too much, I'm not saying don't leave them anything. I'm just saying when we leave them an excessive amount, it removes their need to work hard and trust the Lord as they walk with him in their own lives. And it becomes a burden instead of a blessing. Here's what I would say to you when you're thinking about your children, your grandchildren, don't just leave them an inheritance, leave them a spiritual heritage. Teach them what it means to do good stewardship for the Lord. How do we do that? A couple things. Teach and model stewardship both now in your life. Let them see you giving. Let them see you be generous. Let them know how you prioritize the Lord in your finances. And then also do it in your death. That you would give them some, but you would also have some of your inheritance set aside to to somehow bless the Lord and to continue to glorify him and build his kingdom even after you're gone. And I don't know what that would look like. I don't know if that's the church for you or some other ministry you're involved in or a certain missionary that you want to support, but like do something where you're continuing to multiply your legacy for the Lord even after your days. Give early, give often, and give after. That's how we teach our kids good stewardship.
one of the authors said it this way, will your money outlive you? And not just in dollars, but in impact. After you're gone, is what God given you still going to be making an impact for his kingdom even past your lifetime? It can. The Lord would love to see you do that. Work for God, invest for God, retire for God, legacy of God. Last thing, this kind of actually pulls the whole sermon together right here, is plan for God. The best way to multiply what he's given you faithfully is to have a plan. So here are some steps real quick. I'm going to close with this. Uh, how to plan for the Lord and plan to multiply. Step one of the plan is give. The first thing that God asks us to do is to give generously to the Lord. Number two, budget. All right. Make the best use of what God has given you. Whatever he's given you, whether it's a lot, whether it's a little, whether it's somewhere in between, whatever he's given you, make a budget, make a plan, walk through it so that you get the best return on whatever it is he's blessed you with. Number three, emergency fund. Put some money aside in an emergency fund for those pop-up expenses that you didn't expect so that they don't have to derail your plan and your walk with the Lord to be multiplying faithfully and to be giving to the Lord. And you can protect yourself from that. Number four, we talked about this earlier, life insurance. Right? You don't want to just be worried about you being able to follow the Lord and multiply what he's given you, but also your family. Life insurance allows you to make sure they're protected and they're ready to continue to follow and multiply for the Lord if something happens to you. Number five, pay off debt. Be above reproach with your debt. Right? Debt is not a healthy thing. We're going to talk a little bit about this next week, but... If debt is not against an appreciating asset, then it's problematic. That's just the way it works. And so whatever that is, and I know different people, different life circumstances have happened and different things have happened to you than me and so forth that's got us to where we're at. And there's total grace for that here and no one is condemning anyone on the debt thing. We're just saying, listen, it's an impediment to us multiplying faithfully for the Lord. So let's, get, let's take care of it. Right? Let's make a plan and get it paid off. Whatever that means, whether that's a year or two years or five years or whatever it takes, let's make a plan. Let's get it paid off. Let's be responsible and ethical with how we do that so that we can multiply for the Lord. The next one is invest wisely. Work to multiply your resources in a way that God um, provides for you. The next one is save for college. And this is part of investing in your kids so that they can be multipliers for the Lord down the road. You talk about a legacy, right? Like by giving them a good foot and good teaching financially, they can go on to be multipliers for the Lord even more than you can. So you're saving for college, you're saving for retirement. As we just talked about, we want to retire well so that we can continue to serve the Lord and bless him in those years. So we need to make a plan for that. We need to have some stuff. So sacrifice now so you can do that. And then lastly, plan your estate. Leave a legacy of faithful stewardship to your kids, both now and after you're gone. This is what it looks like to multiply faithfully for the Lord. As I was studying this week, I was reminded of a movie, um, pretty famous movie, uh, Schindler's List. You guys ever see that or hear of that? This movie is set in Nazi Germany, and there's, it's the story of this businessman who comes uh, to the city to buy a factory and try to make a profit off of the war effort. So he comes and he buys his factory and he starts doing his business. But while he's there, he starts to see the, the horrendous, uh, brutal 
abuse that the Jews are taking at the hands of the Nazi party that he is a part of. And he starts bribing the Nazi soldiers to take some of the Jews out of the ghettos and out of the concentration camps and put them to work in his factory, supposedly helping the war effort, but really just trying to protect them from what's going on out there. And he does this over many years, and he saves literally hundreds, maybe thousands of Jews uh, from persecution and from death by pulling them out and putting them to work in his factories. But he's not making anything because he doesn't want to help the war effort. And so pretty soon he runs out, he spends his entire fortune, all of his money on this effort to save these people. And there's a scene at the end of the movie where they're, they're The enemy army is coming in, and they're getting ready to take over, and he's afraid for his life, so he's fleeing for his life. And as he's going out to leave, he walks up, and he sees all the people sitting around, and he starts just crying uncontrollably and saying, I could have done more. I could have done more. Like, you see this car? I don't need this fancy car. That's like, that's 10 more lives. I could have saved 10 more people if I sold this car. He pulls this gold pin off his shirt. This gold pin is two more lives. He says, I could have done more. You do not want to be at the end of your life looking at God saying, I could have done more. I could have done more if I would have trusted you. I could have done more if I would have thought less about myself and more about your kingdom. I could have done more if I would have worked harder and faithfully multiplied what you gave me. That's not where any of us want to be. We only get one life. We only get one chance to multiply what God has given us. Don't waste. Don't waste your opportunity. What does your financial management reveal about who or what you worship? Does it show that you worship self? Does it show that you worship comfort or the praise of man or the admiration of your kids or your net worth? What does it show that you're worshiping? Or does it show that you're worshiping God in all of his glory and all of his splendor and all of his righteousness? Are we putting him first? A good steward gives God a return, not just a receipt. What will you be turning into God at the end of your life? Are you, is all you're going to have to offer to the Lord a big stack of receipts of how you spent everything he gave on you and your comfort and your life and your plan? Or are you going to be able to say, no, I, I gave you a return on the investment that you gave me as a steward, that I multiplied your money for kingdom benefits that I sent it on ahead into eternity and I stored up treasures there as I was investing myself into your kingdom. This is what it means to multiply faithfully. Work hard, multiply the money on earth so I can invest it in the kingdom. So I, wanna, I want you to think about this question as we close. I want you to, everyone, just individually, just in your head, really process this for a moment. How much do you want to invest in the kingdom? Not hypothetically, I'm talking about like a number. Like right now, I want you to pray and as we go into this last time of worship and just think and ask the Lord, Lord, how much can I invest in the kingdom? Is it $100,000? Is it a million dollars? Like how much can I invest in the kingdom? And then pray and ask the Lord to help you multiply your resources in such a way that in your lifetime, you will be able to invest 
that number back in the kingdom of God. Not for you, not for your glory or your family, not for this church, not for any other organization, but for the Lord. How much can I invest back into the kingdom? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Let the Lord work in us and in our hearts and our minds as we reflect on this together. Heavenly Father, Father God, we just thank you so much for our time together this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you've been working in our church through this series. The way that you've been moving us and changing our hearts, Lord, towards money and towards you. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we are blessed beyond measure. We really are. Lord, that we are blessed not only financially, but we are blessed spiritually by the sacrifice of your son. And Lord, we thank you that you provide every monetary need that we have because you love us. You love your children. And we want to love you. We want to love you. We want to glorify you above everything else in our lives. Help us put our eyes on you, on your money. Not our money, not our plans. Help us, Lord, to faithfully multiply what you have given for the good of your kingdom instead of our own. Help us to boldly follow you. Follow you, follow your mission to multiply whatever you give us. Lord, we commit today to follow you with all we have, with all of our life. We trust you. In Christ's name.